Good morning. Yeah, excited to be at church, huh? No? That was heavenly, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're new here this morning, as Bobby said, we welcome you. It's great to have you here. Uh, this is our teaching time, and so we do teach from the Bible. Uh, it's not just a book. Uh, it's a powerful uh, story that God wrote through over 40, or 40 authors, 66 different letters or books, if you will, that all point to one thing, and that's Jesus. And if you were kind of mystified this morning about why the church exists, uh, you just saw a video that says that there's a calling and mission in the church, and we've been in a series for three weeks talking about Epic, this, this amazing thing called the local church. And friends, it's been done for centuries. And we're not doing something new this morning. We're doing something that's been done over centuries for the purpose of reaching people that don't know God. And it was so cool to hear, isn't it? It's a revolution, but it, it changed education and medicine and art and literature. And just it goes on that God has been using his church. Last week, if you hadn't been here, you might have heard uh, or you missed us talking about the launch, the launch of the church. The launch was not launched by a person. We saw in Matthew chapter 16, as Jesus tells his disciples, and specifically Peter, as Peter says, you are the Christ, he says, on that claim, I'm going to build my church. And he's still doing it today. He still does it in Green Bay. He's still doing it this morning. And so we welcome you as we gather, not to church, but as a gathering of the church. Amen? You could say that once in a while, too, without me asking you to say it. I just want you to know. Kind of gets me fired up. So, okay. We're, we're in this series called Epic, and last talk, week we talked about the launch. This, this morning I want to talk about the plan. What's the goal or the purpose of the local church? And, and the way I want to talk about that this morning is I want to ask you a question. This quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson says, we're... We're always getting ready to live, but never living. Isn't that kind of a, an interesting insight about culture? That we're preparing for things that we want to do one day, but then it seems like we never get to those things. So let me ask you a different question. What is pressing and urgent in your life right now? What, what is the most pressing and urgent passion you have around your life right now? It could be financial. That you have to reach a certain amount in order to retire. It could be that you, are, you have to pay a bill or, or something that's coming up. It could be medically. It could be health-wise that what's most urgent is that you're cancer-free or, or that the, the prognosis of your, of your, uh, your sickness uh, is better. What is the most urgent part of your life? Even they say studies show that um, in preaching today, it's gotten a lot less that I can only keep your attention for about 10 minutes. So hold on for six more minutes, some of you, and then goodbye. We'll see you later. <laughs> but they say uh, because our minds are filled with so much of life that that's, we feel is urgent. We have that tyranny of things that, that come into our life. Uh, it was an interesting speaker on TED Talks, uh, Candy Chang. And she said a statement I thought was really intriguing. She said, thinking about death will clarify your life. I thought that was a little bit morbid, but think about it for a moment. You know, there's these things on the internet now called 
uh, death clocks. Anybody seen those? Yeah? Don't fill those out. Those are just ridiculous. You'll freak out. Like, what? Tomorrow? Um, <laughs> you, there's these death clocks, and they, they really do something interesting. And there's been movies out with this of, what if you knew? What if you really knew how long you had? Let me, let me show you an illustration. If you don't mind helping me this morning, you do not have to sing or anything. Grab the end of this rope. I want you to go to the corner of the room. No rope burns on people's necks. Or, no, you don't run. That, will, that might hurt somebody. Why don't you do this, Jed, if you could. Take the end of this rope. Take it all the way to the corner of the room. Some of you are going to have to hold, uh, help them out there. Now, we had a knot in the first service, so it completely wrecked everything for me because the perfectionist in me just didn't like the knot. Um, keep going to the corner of the room, yeah. Careful with people's necks. Don't do loops around people. Yeah, that would not be good. Okay, so you're going to have to hold it up high. You have to stretch it tight. Try not to take apart my whole... I can't even see that rope. I'm... Now, I turned 50 this month. I'm going to turn 50. I can barely see these days. Uh, all right. So Jed's on one end. What was your name? Dave. Dave. So Dave's on the other end. What if this morning, this rope represents... The, the, the timeline in history. Whether you believe in, however you believe the world started. This morning, if you're a Christ follower, you believe that God created the heavens and earth. We see that in Genesis. But however you feel this morning, you may be someone that doesn't know God, and that's okay. And this morning, you have, maybe it's billions of years, I don't know. But however you see it started, that's the beginning and then you were to run it all the way to when God says he's going to return. We won't even make this an eternity rope yet. In the scope of time, how long do you think your life would represent on this rope? What's the measure of your life? I mean, they say on the average that we about will live around in somewhere in our 70s. Now, I apologize. I did it at the first service. If you're 70 this morning, it's not like you're done. I mean, you know, you got 25 more years. Who knows? I don't know. But I'm just saying, right, they say that it's somewhere in our 70s is the average lifespan in our culture today. So if we were to put something on this rope to represent you, and maybe we would tie this, this black yarn, would represent you. But really, if we were to look at time, especially from the eternity perspective, this would actually need to represent the whole of not just American history, but the whole of mankind, when you start to look at the scope of eternity and, and the breadth of which God's talking about how long we'll be with him and how long we actually have on earth, it's short. It's so short. The Bible talks about this. It just talks about us. Teach us to number our days, the, the proverb says. Teach us to remember that our lives are but a vapor, in James it says. We are but a mist. I mean, you think about somewhere in the midst of this yarn, my little life is, is in there. American history is in there. With that, we should be thinking about what is the urgency for the time that I have. Okay, guys, you can bring that in. Thank you. Give those guys a hand. They were just amazing. So just roll it up, however. Nod it. That's, all, that's fine. This morning, I want to ask you the question, if you know that your life is short, we've seen in the scope of eternity that it is, it's just but a blip. Even in the midst of American history, your life is but a speck of sand. Why are you here? 
Well, what were you meant to do? Was it to go to college, crew? Yeah, go to college. Yeah, good, good grades, yeah. Uh, get good grades, right, so that you could get a good job. Then someone good will marry you because you have a good job, right? Maybe that didn't happen for some, I don't know. But then you, you what? You work enough to where you save enough, you can retire and have kids, and then you can golf the rest of your life. Golfers? Yeah, yeah, there you go. You live or fish the rest of your life. I don't know what it is. But a speck. What is the most pressing and urgent thing in the shortness and brevity of your life? I want you to know this morning that God has a plan for the church, and it wasn't so that you would just be a speck here and gone with no purpose. Uh, The the Bible is filled with messages like this this morning, and I want to push us into uh, to understand two questions, to, to, to kind of understand a little bit more about this plan, but by answering two key questions. And one is, what is God passionately urgent about? What is the urgency in, in God that he, that he finds his passion and he puts every effort and energy toward? I think it's good for us to answer that question this morning because it will give us insight on his plan. Now this will take us to the Bible, to a, a letter written by the physician Luke, Luke wants to get, you know, as physicians are, and amen physicians, that you want to get it right. I'm thankful that you're that way. And he wants to be very precise in painting the picture as he's followed Jesus about the account of Jesus. And he uh, has one of these parables that he, these scenes that he sees Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he wants to paint this picture because it was so profound for him as he uh, unpacks this. And so Luke chapter 15, the scene is, Jesus, this is now tax collectors and sinners, were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Let me ask you a question this morning. If Jesus were to arrive here in Green Bay, where would he be this morning? I think Christians would like to think, uh, and maybe even uh, you here in this morning like to think that he would attend Green Bay Community Church at the 10 o'clock service, Right? You know, that's where he'd be. We start to realize that Jesus himself would would probably not be here. Uh, The two things interesting here, it says tax collectors and sinners. Don't you find that's interesting to to separate those two? Why would he do that? It's not because tax collectors are not sinners. In fact, it's because tax collectors were worse than sinners. See, we recognize that Jesus hung out with People that were in sexual sin, they were, they were greedy, they were prideful, they were murderers. They were all the things that we think are on the bad list of the world today. A tax collector, though, was one of their own that was hired by the Romans to be placed at bridges and rivers and entrances to cities and exits. And they were told, hey, collect this much for Caesar. However much you want to add on the top of that, be our guest. And so they would be absolutely greedy. And they were known as traitors. And, and they, were, they were lower than low. Jesus has tax collectors and sinners around him. But the Pharisees and teachers are a different group. And in culture at that point, a Pharisee and a teacher would have been the most spiritual person that you could find. If you today were to look around and go, who is the most godly people 
that you recognize today, they would be equated with Pharisees and teachers because they knew the scriptures and they tried to live completely obedient to those things. Pharisees and teachers, and here's what they're muttering. This guy, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. If you were a Jew in this time, you wouldn't even walk next to sinful people. I mean, there, there are tons of Jewish laws that would tell you don't touch a sinner. If someone's committed adultery, you stay away from them. There's all these cleanliness laws. Not that you'd get physically dirty, but that you'd be spiritually tainted if you were anywhere near these people. Isn't it interesting today, there's a whole culture of people that call themselves Christians that shun and stay away from tax collectors and sinners. Nowhere in the scripture did it ever say, and you stay way far away from those people. This is an Old Testament uh, part of our picture. So it says that this man welcomes sinners and, eater, or, or sinners and eaters, sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. First he says, suppose one of you, because Jesus hears him, has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? This is an interesting question. I think some would think, well, no, you can't leave the 99 because what if you lost them too? A little bit about sheep. Sheep are the dumbest animal, I think, in the animal kingdom. Now, I'm, if you like sheep, you know, you're like, you like little sheep things in your house, great. Um, I'm, I'm, they're awesome. But there's a reason why God keeps calling us sheep. And not because he wants to insult us, but let me tell you a few things about sheep. If you were to collect a herd of sheep, and they, were to, they basically stay together. They don't leave. In fact, uh, sheep are known, if there's a, a sheep that kind of ventures out and sees grass, and they keep seeing clumps of grass, they'll eat, they'll eat, they'll eat, and all of them will be following that one sheep. And eat fall off the cliff, and all of them will go off with them. <laughs> sheep stay together. Sheep huddle together. So this shepherd knows very clearly that if he leaves the 99, he might be thinking, gosh, I don't want a predator to come and get them. That could be possibility. But as a shepherd, you wouldn't know where the highlands were, where the lowlands were, where safety was. So it says he takes that risk. And he, he goes looking for the one. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Joyfully. He's not beating that sheep. He's not cursing that sheep. All, he is excited because he's found the one. It goes on and says, then he calls his friends. It's not enough just to find it. He has a party. He says, I'm calling my friends and neighbors together and say, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I'll give you some insight on what Jesus is talking about. Remember, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. How dare you do that? It says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. In other words, this morning, heaven's not so impressed that we're all dressed up and we're such good people. See, there's something interesting in Wisconsin culture that I believe has been very damaging to your faith, that you believe you have to get cleaned up to see God. You have to clean yourself up in order to come before God. 
Friends, when you think this way, there's no reason for Jesus. Because the truth be told, you were all lost. We were all lost sheep, and he found us. And heaven rejoices when you got found. This morning, heaven is celebrating because maybe some of you this morning are here and don't know God. And you found yourself in some crazy way. You saw that crazy sign in the front and thought, I don't know why, but I'm supposed to be here. Or somebody brought you. And you're not sure if you're mad at them or happy yet, right? But you're here. And God's calling out, and it's like he's reaching for you, the one in the 99. He goes on to say another part of the parable. He says, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Now it's interesting, he first starts with sheep. Sheep were abundant in Israel culture. I mean, you probably could get a sheep anywhere, right? Again, sheep lovers in this morning, take this for a grain of salt, but really... They weren't the highest of things to own. In fact, being a shepherd was probably one of the lowest starting jobs you could get. But now it turns to money. Now money's pretty important, right? How many of you have lost a credit card? Yeah. I mean, are you like, ah, whatever, no big deal, I'll just call for another piece of plastic? No, what do you do? Where did I leave that thing? I better find it. You're nervous, right? It has value. Uh, some friends on staff, uh, they lost their iPhone. And if you know much about the Apple iPhone, you can go online, and if you've clicked that little button on your phone, you can ping it. So it's interesting, and you can find it. And so they had people at home as they were in a car, and they were, it was like passing them on the highway, and they were turning around their car. They end up in a store, pinging in this person's pocket who had taken it from another store, trying to figure out how do they approach the person who took their phone. This is awesome. <laughs> this is like one of those like, detective shows. And so I guess the way they approached this person, they said, hey, that's our phone. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. And it's going ding, 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 ding. He keeps shutting it off. The person at home keeps pinging it. I mean, it's hilarious. But man, when they got that back, oh, could they go buy another phone? Absolutely. There's something in this, these parables that God's trying to communicate and saying, listen, friends, don't be fooled. We can sit in church buildings a lot of our life and forget that this isn't what God's impressed with. This is not what he parties over. It is he is energized and heaven rejoices when the people who aren't here on Sunday morning when the people who don't know him get found. This is, this is very critical in understanding the plan of the local church. So he's talked about lost sheep. He talks about lost coins, and so the value keeps going up. Now he ups the ante, and he says, I want to talk about now something even more to the heart, closer to our souls, if a family member gets lost. I remember Trish and I, we, were at, we would go to Disneyland often. We had passes. And I remember one time we lost one of our daughters for a period of really, it had to be, it felt like four hours. It was, I think it was only like three minutes. Seriously. 
Because she, you know how a little one wanders off and having four is like, you know, where are they? You tether them to your body. I mean, it's like, especially in Disneyland. Man, the, the gratefulness of finding them. Listen to this story, and, and we'll, we'll kind of paraphrase it. We won't spend a lot of time on it. But in verse 11 of Luke 15, Jesus continues his parable lesson. Again, he's heard these Pharisees, these righteous people that really care about getting it all right and having everything, their whole life is about obeying everything and being perfect. And he's saying, I want to give them more, a deeper picture, a more clearer picture of what God really cares about. He says he has two sons. There's a man that has two sons. The young one says to his father, Father, give me my share of my estate. So he, defi- he divided his property between them. Now, this is important to understand. Back then, obviously, the eldest son would have been um, the key uh, recipient of the large inheritance from his father. And actually, often, younger sons didn't have uh, much of anything. They had maybe a small portion. Not only is this a horrible thing or an untraditional thing for a son to ask, a younger son to ask, he's saying, in essence, this is only happening when your dad dies. Dad, I wish you were dead, so give me what you owe me. Think about that. It's, it's complete rejection. It's, it's evil. It's hurtful. This morning, we're not going to be able to get into this, but this picture paints a picture of the garden separation. When we were born in this world of sin, we've rejected God. We've walked away. We said, just give me what you owe me. I'm out. It goes on, though, the story in verse 13. Not long after that, this younger son gets all he has all his money and sets off for a distant country and there he squanders his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, uh, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. The passage actually will go on that he is so in need, he begins to serve food to pigs and has to sleep with the pigs and eat their food. I mean, talk about a parable that Jesus is trying to paint the lowest of lows. And it's, it's people that you think and you see in, your, in the life in this world today that have made every mistake. And it's easy for us to cross our arms and go, they should never have done that. I told them, they, just des- they deserve what they got. How quickly Christian people can do this. He is lost, he is out. And friends, this morning, I don't save people. My message can't save a person. The music doesn't save people. Programs don't save people. It is only Jesus Christ, and it is when someone is hungry. It's so great about this parable because he, it says that he got hungry. Most of you sit in this room because something substantial, a, some sort of pivotal, a pivotal circumstance in your life created a deep-seated hunger, an empty spot in your soul, and you said, I need Jesus. It's my only option. It's my only hope. That's when people come to Christ. That's what saves people. Not messages, not music. So he he begins to have this great need and hunger, and then it it says that he gets up and decides, I'm going to go home. When people get hungry, it's the prayer that we're close enough to them to share that hope and that story of when we were hungry 
And we get that chance to pour in them and saying, I was hungry once too. I just went home. I went home. And it says that this great kind of picture, you could see this movie scene being filmed, right? As the father is looking out on the road and maybe even having a prayer time of thinking, Lord, one day will you bring my son home? Could you just see the camera shot over the shoulder, right? Looking down this winding path and in the distance sees a son muddied from pigs, tattered clothing, barely, probably scraped up, dragging his feet. And it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father sees him and was filled with compassion. Man, it's so easy for us to not have compassion for the world today. Doesn't it go quickly for you to turn on the news and look at the evil in the world today and just point a finger, cross your arm, and doubt they deserve it? Yep, they deserve it. And have no compassion, no grace. It says, sees him a long way off, filled with compassion for him. He runs to his son. Guys, Jewish men didn't do that. Jewish adult men did not run to things. Not only does he run to his son, like a love story, runs to him, throws his arms around him, as dirty as he is. Friends, you do not clean up to find Jesus. You come dirty. It's part of the reason, the beauty of coming in this room. Because we all come dirty. Even knowing Jesus and him cleaning us up, we come dirty every morning or every week because we realize what? Man, it's a struggle to follow him. He kisses him and embraces him. That's the picture of the church. That's the picture of what God's called us to be living. It says that in verse 21, there's an eldest son. Now, guys, the eldest son has gotten it all right. You know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe some of you in this room, that you've kind of got the do and don't list, and you're scoring pretty high, feeling pretty good this morning. As you looked at that list, you didn't murder anybody yet, right? Feeling pretty good about yourself? You know, you've not stolen from somebody? I mean, we go down the list, and you, and you feel pretty good. You've got some, you know, as Christians would call respectable sins, you know, the little ones. A lot of people live with those lists of guilt and shame in this culture and around the, thinking, that guy, they've got it right. This son feels like he's done it all right. God, I, he says, Father, I've not messed up and I didn't ask you for the money and I didn't do these wrong things like my brother did. My brother. It's his own brother. Father, I've, have I sinned against heaven and against you? Am I no longer worthy to be called your son? He's upset because this father throws a party for his lost son. He kills a calf. It says in verse 22, but the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring this fattened calf and let's kill it. Let's have a celebration. So this is this oldest son. Father said, you're always with me. You've always been here, oldest son. I, I know you've been obedient. That's awesome. But everything I have is yours. That's never changed. But we have to celebrate what is the largest priority. What I'm most passionate about is that my, your brother, my son, was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and he was found. 
What is God most urgent about? What is he most passionate about in today? That in the continuum of time from day one, what's he been passionate about? It's about finding you and me. Finding lost people. It's so interesting to watch the local church forget this. And then church becomes all about, there are things that are okay, but we start to pick churches around, well, am I going to get fed? Really? Is the teacher, you know, does he use more than yellow rope in illustrations, right? Can he keep me more than 10 minutes? Is the children ministry good? Do they have enough service times that fit my schedule? And so we start to kind of pack all these things around what we're going to call church when really, this is not the passion that God has. Now these things are not bad. Coffee's not bad. All the, this is all good stuff. But we can slowly find ourselves moving away from what is God really passionate about. It's not us in here singing a song to him once in a while and, oh man, that was good. Thank you guys for that. That was great. Scripture says that we should be so grateful. We should be so irresistibly drawn to Jesus that it's not about what he thinks, it's about we just want to honor him every week. We, we want to do this. So now, what's the purpose of the church? If this is what God's most passionate about, what is the purpose? This takes us now to the last words that Jesus will give his disciples and, and he's going to, to call them to a higher call. That, that song we sang. You, you call me higher. You call me deeper. You, read the, you kind of read the lyrics this morning or sang those lyrics. I could be safe in your arms and that's, I could just be here. I could just go to church every week and just take and take and take. But you've called me higher. You've called me deeper. You've called me something greater. And what is that? That purpose of the local church? Jesus is going to give these words, and his disciples are going to listen to this charge. It says, Then Jesus came to them and, and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. He didn't say, Hey, go and look in every city and find a strategic location to purchase property. And when you purchase property, build yourself a great building and then make sure you have a couple service times and that you hire a decent pastor, you know, someone who you know, can keep you at least attentive more than 10 minutes, right? I mean, it's what I talked about earlier. We start to attach all this. He doesn't say that. He says, go make disciples. Go make disciples. Not just in Green Bay, but in every nation. Go make disciples. When you make a disciple, they'll affirm their love for me by being baptized, and that is underneath not your authority. They're not being a disciple of you, but a disciple of Jesus, and it's under the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And oh, by the way, what means to be a disciple is teach them about obeying my law, my order, my way. Make disciples. Uh, it's, it's not rocket science. But it's difficult for us to not forget this. It's difficult for us to remember 
that we're to make disciples. The, the word disciple is simple this, because I think often we think that this is a long curriculum. Like being a disciple, wow, you have to know all these answers and you have to know where Zechariah is and Elijah and, and you have to know about all the laws and you don't. Being a disciple simply means this. You take the posture of a learner. In order to be a learner, you need to be receiving teaching. And when you do that, you place yourself, you say, I'm following Jesus, I'm in a learning posture. Friends, I read the scripture, not so that I get it all right and I impress you on a Sunday, because I'm a learner, I'm a pupil. I'm a student of following Jesus, and I want to know what it means to follow him. Whether I teach on Sunday or not, I want to be a learner. That's being a disciple. You know what's beautiful about that? You're all at different places in your discipleship, and there is no one person that's better than the other. Jesus says, make disciples. It means to increase in one's knowledge. Alan Hirsch says it this way, discipleship is becoming more and more like Jesus and letting him live his life more and more in me. So Sunday morning represents what? A bunch of disciples coming together, bringing some other people that might be interested in becoming disciples and continuing to be disciples the next week and the next week and the next day and the next hour. This is what it means. We're, we're to make disciples. To make disciples, though, there's a, a balance. And, and I want to spend uh, just a couple moments before I close here this morning because I think this is critical. Because I think this, again, is the issue that we struggle with in this culture and this issue of grace and truth. In John chapter 1, the, the, the disciple John is going to, again, his account of the life of Jesus, of following him. And he wants to make sure that we understand that Jesus is the embodiment, full grace and full truth of God. What do I mean by that? Truth is the, the words and the embodiment of who God is, and he calls us to live a certain way. It's not rules of saying, don't do these things because I want you to suffer and not have fun in life. He says, I've called you to be this. You are my sons and daughters. This is how I've created you. Therefore, live in this way, and you will find most fulfillment. You will find an amazing joy and blessing living in the way I've called you to live. That's truth. God is truth. It says that Jesus is the truth. So disciples following Jesus are following truth. And so we get this great book today called the Bible, and it's an assortment of, of these books written by 40 authors, and we have 66 of them, and it's written over 2,000 years, different countries, and all of them point to truth. Jesus. We're to follow Jesus. That's truth. The other side of that coin, it says that he was the full embodiment of grace. Grace. Grace is the ability to forgive, to let go, and not to judge people for their behavior, but to see who they really are. Jesus becomes this great balance of that. And you read it in your Bible, friends, from Genesis to Revelation, but specifically the stories of Jesus. Remember when he catches... He catches the, the uh, they're, they're about to stone the adulterous woman, the woman who committed adultery. 
He draws a line in the sand. And what does he do? He doesn't short truth. He agrees that she is sinful. But what does he say to the Pharisees who think they're better than her? Any of you without sin, throw the first stone. Jesus not only gives truth, he gives grace. What happens is, when we are a culture, a church body, that all we are is about truth, and there's no grace, we breed self-righteous legalism. If all we are is about taking in more information about the Bible and God and obedience, and we don't have a balance of grace, we become a hyper-legalistic culture that points the finger at the world and shakes shakes our head and says how bad and evil they are. And friends, this morning, Jesus would have no part of that here. Jesus would be out there with them. The other side of the coin, though, is if we have too much grace without truth, what do we breed? We create a culture that has, what, moral relativism. Everything's okay. There is no sense of truth and obedience. You see that when we are disciples of Jesus, we live in a balance, a tightrope walk of truth and grace, truth and grace, truth and grace. I need grace this morning because I don't have all this figured out. I don't have all the answers to the scripture. In fact, there are messages I've heard of mine from the past. I cringe and go, ooh, wow. Not because it was performed bad, Because I've grown as a disciple and learned, wow, I don't think it means that anymore. I don't think it means that. I've learned and grown. And I'm not necessarily, I'm not a false teacher, but I'm growing and learning. And there is no one person that embodies the fullness of truth apart from Jesus. So being disciples this morning, we live in this balance of being pupils, of students, learning but underneath grace and truth. So, what's the purpose of the church? Make disciples that go and make new disciples. That's it. It's not rocket science. It's, it's we are to be making disciples. And what that means is making disciple doesn't mean that you have to take them through a four-year curriculum. They have to memorize all the books of the Bible, you know, and they have to check out these things that they're doing. They're, no, it's, they're a learner. And how does that begin? It means you finding someone who doesn't know Jesus and they get hungry and you share your story about how you, how you are fulfilled in your hunger and saying, do you want to follow Jesus with me? And I'll tell you everything I know about him. You've made a disciple. You've made a disciple. You know what that does for us this morning? Nobody's off the hook. Nobody in the Green Bay Community Church will be measured not on my preaching. It will be measured on whether you're making disciples. Green Bay Community Church is debt-free. It will not be measured on its debt, ever. It will be measured on whether it's making disciples. Green Bay Community Church will not be measured on many things that we think are okay and good, and they are it will be measured on whether it's making disciples. So this morning, if you think about it, the principle is this. If you were to put yourself in the middle and you are a disciple this morning, some of you aren't, and you're investigating God. 
But the way it started for me, if I put my name there, Troy, I was invested in. And my life changed. And I don't know how many people that I've invested in, but you could see this product. But look at the numbers. If you were to disciple, if one of you in this room were to disciple one person every year for the next five years, and those people were to pour their life into somebody else each year, you'd have 32 disciples. 32 people that are beginning to be followers of Jesus Christ. That's only one person. Look what happens in 10 years. That one person now has over 1,000. That's about what attends services here every week. 1,000. You want to see something crazy? How many people are in Brown County? A little under a quarter million? In 18 years, one person could reach 262,000 people. Friends, what's wrong with the local church today is that we forgot. We're to be disciples. And you're not a disciple if you're not pouring into somebody else that either doesn't know God or does know God. And friends, it's what's the problem with the church. We've reduced it to religion. We've reduced it to a few things that kind of make us feel good about our life for the week. But following Jesus means you're getting out and you're so overwhelmed with that gift that was given to you when you were hungry, you can't help but leave this place and find hungry people. This is what the church is about. And this is not guilt on you. This is excitement because why not us? Why not us in this room decide community church will forever be different because one of you for the next 18 years does that? Two of you. If 10 of you for the next five years would do this, it'd be 3,200 disciples. Why can't we reach all of Brown County? I'm convinced because people don't understand what it means to be a part of the local church, and it means to make disciples. Friends, it's not about classes. It's not about programs. Those are all good, and those all give you a chance to learn. But friends, it's about you finding someone else to share your story with at work, in your neighborhood, where you shop, wherever that might be. If I look at my life, I put it there, I know that someone discipled me. Bo Boshears poured into my life, and I know that his story was a college football coach that did the same for him. And then my life changed, and I started to pour into people, and I have friends that poured into other people. And the legacy continues. I told you, I think last week, I had a phone call years ago about a guy called Jeremy McGinty out of San Diego. His Troy, you probably don't remember me, but I used to go to that program in Burbank. And I went to the program, that youth ministry, because I wanted to pick up girls. And he goes, but something changed my life. I pastor a, lot, a few thousand, a church in San Diego. And now I'm discipling people. Oh, there is nothing more gratifying, fulfilling in your short life that you will have on this earth than being a part of the local church. And you're all qualified if you know them. This morning, I want you to pick up that card. It says go. There's a go card there. And if you don't have one, find a piece of paper. We should have go cards in there. I don't know if there's enough. If you don't, I want you to write your name in the middle of it. Write your name in the middle of it. 
And the team's going to come up and they're going to sing a song that I think is a reflective song. And so friends, I know that you're so, we kind of get robotic in here at Community Church and we just, oh, this is communion time, you go up. Listen, hear me. I want you to write your name there. I do not want you to go to communion with answering, without answering at least one of what I'm going to ask you to answer. First, if your name in the middle and you don't know God this morning, the scripture says don't take communion. It's not a religious hoop to jump through. If you don't know God this morning and you write your name in the middle, might you pray and ask God for someone to pour into you? And that would be on the left side. Who is it that's going to pour into you? Ask for that this morning. If you know Christ this morning, then I would ask you to look to the right on your piece of paper and ask who is it that God's calling you to begin to pour your life into. Friends, you may not even know their name. It might be, dude I see at the bank, you know? Person in neighborhood that doesn't clean their yard, you know? Whatever it is, but I'm going to ask you, do not get up and take communion until you identify someone. Why? Because I want you to share the same urgent passion that God does. That's for lost people. And when God gives you that name or description of that person, I want you to write it out there, and I want you to begin to pray. And when you go to communion this morning, you go to communion celebrating that God sought after you. He sought after you and I. Isn't that amazing? That makes me want to sing. Off key or on key, doesn't matter. It makes me want to sing and go, God is a great God that he would, he would let me come to him. And then I want you to think about this word all next week. Most of the things that we do here are opportunities for you to what? As a disciple, to invite someone else on the journey with you. We know they're not fix-its. There's a men's event that's going to come on in a couple weeks. Men, you know guys that don't know the Lord, invite them. That's an easy step. Leadership launch, some of you invite them. Small groups, invite them. A lot of these things here are ways that you can invite people. They're not to replace your responsibility. They're to help you. Friends, we have been called to this great charge. And that is to be a part of God's amazing plan in making disciples in the local church. And I can't help it, but I'm addicted to it, and I will give every last year I have in my life to do that. And before you go to communion, do not get up until you've written those names in. Let's pray. Father, we give you glory and honor and praise this morning for reaching the people in this room. Some don't know you yet, but God, we pray that they would be introduced to you this morning. The hunger would be too great. Others do know you. God, would you put an irresistible weight of them going out and finding and pouring into somebody else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.